man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the person spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard of it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Hey, welcome again. Uh, my name is Matt Odom, one of the pastors here. The, the other pastor is Adam Odell, sitting up there in the structure. And uh, it's our practice here to spend some moments in silence before I preach. And the reason why we do that is because we think that that's a spiritual act, that you're engaging with your creator when you pray. And I know it's very easy to disengage when you hear somebody praying with a mic. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to pray with me. And what we're asking this morning in that prayer is, um, is, it, is it possible for you to come to the awareness that you are saved and that you have the assurance that you are saved? Um, and so let's, uh, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come now to open your word and to peer into it, things into which angels long to look, Lord, your gospel. And it's so, so very easy if we've been around it, grew up hearing about you to, to very quickly lose our wonder at what it is that you have done and, and who you are. And Lord, I ask that you would re-engage our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and teach us what it means to re resist um, resist the spirit, Lord. This is the great danger for all of us. And Lord, simultaneously show us that we can be sure that you love us. We can be sure that you have saved us. And we understand that through the very gospel. And so show us the gospel in new and fresh ways, in very deep ways this morning and comfort those who are hurting um, right now. In Christ's name, amen. 
So one of the questions that this text is addressing is, can I, can I be saved? Can I know that I am okay with God? Is there anything that I have done in the past or anything that I am that is too far beyond the scope of God's love? Can I be right with God? And I have had much, much personal experience of doubting that myself. I have had many people in my family that struggle with that. Um, also, over the course of my ministry, lots of people will come into your life. This is one of the great privileges of being a pastor where people will ask you, um, am I too far gone for God? Is there something that I've done or something that I am that is beyond the reach of his love, that is beyond the reach of me being in relationship with him? And I hope at the very least, uh, one of the things that you encounter through this text is that this, this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God, I hope it at the very least catches you off guard in, in terms of what Jesus says to people when they have that question. And one of the great uh, responses to Jesus throughout the gospels is that when anyone is in his vicinity, if they begin to be curious or intrigued or in the least bit captivated by him, you're, you're heading in the right path. It is with those people who think that they already know everything about what God is doing in the world, that Jesus has the gravest warning. Uh, Albert Einstein, Jewish scientist, responded to the question, do you accept the historical existence of Jesus? This is what Albert Einstein said. He said, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. And what you're going to see in our passage is that you have two main responses to Jesus healing somebody. You have the crowds who are curious and think that it's, generally speaking, it's a good thing that something good is happening. And then you have the Pharisees, and they've already made up their mind about what they believe about him. And Jesus is going to press in on them in our past. He's going to press in on the Pharisees, and he will not let up. This is one of those passages that like grabs you by the throat, the jugular, and says, I want you to pay attention because there's something dangerous that the Pharisees are doing in, in this passage. And this, you know, our town was named after Abraham Lincoln. And one of Lincoln's famous speeches, he quotes from this particular passage where he's trying to get the country of the United States to own the fact that they were a house divided. And that you either go the way of slavery or you go the way of freedom, but we cannot exist in the in-between because the house will, will crumble. It will, it will cave. And that's what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. He's saying, you're, you're trying to have a divided heart, and I'm pressing the issue here. I'm pressing the issue on what it is that you actually believe about me. And I'm making what's in your heart come to the surface. So according to Jesus... There is only one unforgivable sin that a human being can make. And that's a remarkable statement if you just think about it on the surface. It's not, uh, the unforgivable sin is not murder. It's not suicide. It's not any sort of sexual sin. 
It's not even, Jesus even says this in the text, it's not even speaking a word against him. Isn't that fascinating? It's this thing called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So we're all like, okay, what is that, you know? Um, and we're going to talk about that. But in order to understand blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you have to understand the context of it and the eternal mistake of it. And so first, the context of blasphemy. Look at your text in verses 22 through 24, the first three verses. What actually happens in the text is that Jesus heals a man who's blind, mute, and has a demonic spirit. Which up to this point in the gospel, this, this guy was pretty physically, spiritually, and emotionally broken. And Jesus comes up into his life and immediately heals him, which isn't actually all that un, unnatural, according to Jesus, up to this point in the gospel. But this section isn't necessarily about that healing. It's about what happens in the aftermath of that healing, specifically with the Pharisees. And I want you to look at what the crowd say. They say, can this be the son of David? And if you, so Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. David was a, an incredible king a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. And what David did is that he gathered all of the scattered sheep of the house of Israel and ruled and reigned in, in an epic way. And every Jewish person is trying to get back to the, to the monarchy of David. And so when they ask, is this the son of David? What they're asking is, is this, is this the son that was promised and hoped for coming from the line of the great king? In 2 Samuel 7, this is the apex of the Old Testament here. This is what it says. God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which is their way of saying when you die. I will raise up after you offspring who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. That's the gospel in the Old Testament, by the way. This is what Matthew has in mind when he says gospel. He shall build me a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this is what the people are asking. This is what the crowds are asking. Those who generally know about the Bible, generally know about the promises of of Jesus, they're looking at him and they're saying, is this the one? Is this the, is this the goat? You know, we always ask who's the goat and whether it's fashion or sports, we're always looking for the one, right? Well, this is the one, the one of the one, you know, and the crowds are, are saying, is this the one? Now that's what they, that's how they respond to Jesus, Jesus's miracles. But I want you to look at verse 24 and how the Pharisees respond. The Pharisees say, this is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's how he casts out demons. Now, here's what I want you to, to pay attention to. Um, what you have there is people, this is going to be very important in how you understand this thing called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is people looking at the same exact thing, the same thing, and they don't just come to different conclusions, but they come to the polar opposite conclusions. So the crowds see Jesus as doing a good thing and seemingly of God, and the Pharisees see evil. They see the, the work of Satan. That's, that's what the text is saying. Now, now, how can this be? 
how can an expert of the Bible and somebody who is always teaching it, always around it, always studying it, always giving it to somebody else, how can they be so confused about Jesus? I'll tell you how. It is very, very, very easy to be a teacher, to always be around it, and forget that it is an absolute wonder that God would and could save somebody like you. You forget why you got into it to begin with. Like frog in the kettle type deal. The familiarity does breed contempt. And you have to be very, very, very careful. You know how you lose your wonder at the magic of like beautiful mountains in the beach? You move there. And what happens if you move to the mountains and and the beach? What used to just make you gasp becomes sort of background that you barely even notice. Well, this is what happened with the Pharisees. They got into the religious circles. They rose up in leadership. They're always around it. And they they had lost their wonder at the very thing that they claimed to believe in, at the very thing that they lived their life for, at least from their mouths, that's what they're they're claiming. And Jesus is saying, pay attention to what you're doing. Even pay attention to your logic. I'm, I'm not trying to be crass here, but in verses 25 through 28, Jesus is saying, your logic is stupid. You're saying that Satan is casting out Satan. That doesn't even make sense. And apparently the literal sons of the Pharisees, the Jewish people in general, had a recent history of casting out demons. And Jesus says, your sons don't even, you know, they don't cast them out by Satan. And then that epic verse in verse 28, Jesus says this. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal all his stuff unless you first bind him? Now, look, let let me do a little bit more teaching and then we'll get practical because I know this is like this is a bizarre passage. Right. But here's what he's saying. One of the major signs that the kingdom of God, that the throne of David had come into the earth through him is that he, the king, the Messiah, would cast out demons. And you're like, what? Okay, um, what, what Jesus was doing is that he was reenacting what Adam and Eve should have done in the garden. They were supposed to cast out the serpent out of the garden. And what Jesus is saying is that I, I am casting out the serpent of serpents. I am here to bind Satan. And the way that Satan gets bound is through God's love being sent into the world through his son and anybody that believes in him will not perish. But if you don't believe in him, you are condemned already. And what Jesus is saying is that Satan is bound, but he will rage just like these Pharisees. And even if you smash the head of a snake, the body is still writhing. And that's what's going on. That we live in the overlap of the ages of God coming into the world, but the the kingdom hasn't been fully manifested. Now, the great illustration of this is that, you know, D-Day in World War II, when they stormed the beaches at Normandy, is very different than V-Day, Victory Day. 
But when they took the beach, the Allied forces, has a, they had essentially won the war. But some of the fiercest fighting happened between D-Day and V-Day, even though they had essentially already won. What Jesus is saying, because of my entry into the world, I have defeated Satan. And it's done. I've cut off his head. And so, back to the Pharisees. When they look at Jesus, they are literally seeing the works of evil. And what Jesus is saying is that you're seeing love incarnate in your midst and you're calling it evil. You're seeing the good news of God coming into the world and you're calling it the worst news. They won't accept anything but what they have already decided in their minds about Jesus. Now, let's get practical. Um, have you ever been misunderstood? You know, you tell somebody over and over and over again the truth that you see about them, right? Whether it's a good thing or, or a bad thing, but you, you tell them, and then what they hear is the exact opposite. That ever happened to you? You know, you give somebody a gift, and somebody's like, you're just trying to manipulate me. I don't trust that. You say something kind about somebody's appearance, and, and they say, you're probably saying this just because you think I'm ugly. You know? There can be a voice in people's heads that it literally makes it impossible for them to hear and to receive another reality. <clears throat> this is how evil works. The Pharisees are seeing the exact opposite of what he's doing, and therefore this passage is going to make a whole lot more sense when understanding this sin. He's saying to the Pharisees, you won't believe the gospel because you have actually made yourself not believe it. It's not that you can't believe it, it's that you won't. It's very simple in the end. Will you accept Jesus' words in reality over your own? That's what it comes down to with every human being. Will you accept Jesus' words in reality over your life, over against your own? Your own experience, your own, your, own, your own voice in your own head. Now, um, what this means is that if you are worried that you have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that means that you haven't committed it. The person who has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is so deluded and so blind that they've convinced themselves that they don't need forgiveness. And part of the beauty of this is that, you know, you get to talk to people all the time in, in ministry that are very, very concerned about their own salvation. Frightened. And this text is, is one of the most comforting passages for somebody like that, because if you are concerned, then the offer of the gospel is for, is for you. It is those who see Jesus as the exact opposite of what he is that are so, so, so much in danger. And so the, the second point, the eternal mistake of blasphemy, look at verse 31. I just want to read this because this is such an amazing verse. Um, 
Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. You know what that verse says? If you can't believe in a God that would forgive you of all the things that you've done in your life, everything, (laughs) everything. Just think about that for just a moment. Everything you've thought, every lust, every small anger, every large anger, everything that you've even said about Jesus himself. Jesus says, if you don't believe that I can forgive that and want to forgive that, then you know more about the gospel than the king. What can't be forgiven? It's to refuse that, to believe that there is forgiveness. And that it's offered to you and that you desperately need it. That's what can't be forgiven. And we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit in two ways. It's by thinking that we don't need Jesus' grace towards us, or that Jesus won't actually accept us because we're just too terrible. And in each case, what's happening is that we are refusing the gospel. We are refusing to take Jesus at his word. This is the only sin that makes you irreparably separate from God. It's when you look at Jesus in the scriptures and you say, this is false and it's not for me. It's not something I need. And you will eventually see it as this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, you'll eventually see me as not just wrong, but I will become the worst imaginable to you that God would send his son into the world to save wicked people. And you begin to turn that best news into coming into the world into the worst news because you'll have to. And there will be no other option. Jesus will always force what's in our hearts to the surface. Now, how do you know if you're doing this? How do you know if the seeds of blasphemy are taking root in your heart? Well, when somebody confronts you about your sin, when you feel exposed, when somebody speaks into your life, or not even that, like when you feel the the inward nudge of the Holy Spirit that God is telling you, hey, you need to change in this area. You need to examine this in, in your life. And if your response to that is like, what, me? Like, I don't... I'm not in the wrong. I don't need grace. Are you, are you say, um, you know, no one's ever said that about me, therefore it can't be true. When somebody takes the risk to speak into your life, this is how a Christian responds. When confronted, when exposed, when something about them is highlighted, even if it's like 1% true to 5% true, Here's here's the Christian response. Lord, please forgive me. I am a sinner. Have mercy. I've never met anyone who looks at Jesus and calls it the work of evil. I have met so many, especially in the church, who refuse to take ownership of their own sin. 
And this is the beauty of the gospel. If you take ownership of your own sin, it only drives you further and further and further in love with the Lord. Because it drives you to Christ. Look, if you take, if you take that posture in your life of life, when, whenever, you, whenever, whenever somebody comes at you, and you say, I'm going to take the slightest kernel of what they said, and I'm going to own it. Just watch, if you're married, just watch how that transforms your marriage. Because what happens is that you just inserted the gospel into your relationship. You have just, in front of your spouse, rested in the righteousness of Christ, in their very presence. And it diffuses everything. And brings hope. But if you refuse to think that you need grace and forgiveness, which is where these Pharisees were, you will never gasp at God's open arms for you because you won't think that you need it. You won't think that you need God's open embrace for you. And you definitely don't think that Jesus can give it. And what the gospel says is please don't assume that you're good. But you can assume that Jesus is good. Which means that when any bad is pointed out in you, it will point you to Christ. That is the beauty of how God works in a human being's life. It's like you can't beat them. Like, point it out, okay, if you point out sin in me, that just drives me further and further into the resurrection life for which I'm destined. Okay. Give me Christ. Jesus is saying, look, don't rob yourself of me. <laughs> That's what blasphemy is. It's, it's, it's saying God doesn't, clearly God, God doesn't love me enough, so I'm just going to continue to think that I'm a terrible person. Or, or, you, or you say, I don't, need, I don't need that. And God's like, no, oh, this is why I sent my son into the world. And so what the great challenge of the Christian life is, you know, you get, you get to a place where like, okay, well, I've, I've experienced the gospel in a fresh new way. Like I'm on the mountaintop or I'm at the beach and like I see its beauty, right? And then you go back to Monday morning and you're like, ah, where'd it go? You know? Um, and what N.T. Wright says, he calls that the, the shallow land in between. And it's not that you're always trying to like stay this heightened level of awareness, but I want to I give you this quote from N.T. Wright, and then I want to get very practical because I've had a lot of experience with doubting my own salvation. But N.T. Wright says this, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? And if you just think about that right now with the hurricane that has pillaged Florida, that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself has become life and walked in our midst. Either Christianity means that or it means nothing. It's a sham. It's deceit. And he says, most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. How can you avoid living in the shallow world in between and live face to face before God. This is how it plays itself out with me. When I go to bed at night and I lie there 
and I ask, God, am I saved? Am I? I would encourage you to do that, by the way. On the pages in Scripture and throughout my life, the resounding answer is always, do you want to be? Because if you want to be, of course that's freely offered. Come. That's why I sent my son Jesus into the world. This is the eternal mistake. This is the eternal mistake. To say, why would somebody like me need saving? It's the eternal mistake to say, I'm too far gone for God. The testimony of Scripture is that we all need saving. And no one is ever too far gone for God unless they want to be in the end. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's where you look at Jesus and you say, I don't want him and I want to be away from him. Now, unless you have said that, the offer of the gospel is open to you in this very moment and you can have eternal life no matter what you've done. And you could have done the worst thing. But the worst thing, according to Jesus, is looking at his son and saying, it's not for me. I don't want it. It's the opposite of what he's saying. So be assured that God covers your sins in the blood of Jesus Christ and rest on him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. Let's pray and then we will continue with confession and assurance. Father, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, Lord, whenever you expose sin in us, whether it's the inward inclinations or nudges of the Spirit, wanting us to focus on our particular ways in which we're running away from you, or or if it's with brothers and sisters in our lives speaking into our lives and saying, hey, man, you need need to focus on this. You need to change. Uh, Lord, help help us not to run away from that. Help us to know that you are there for us, always wanting us to answer the question that you asked. Did did you believe that I loved you? And have you lived out of that love? Or have you been running scared for your entire life? Lord, these Pharisees were scared. And it was a kindness for you to even engage them in this way. And so, Lord, engage us as we confess sins, as we hear these words of assurance, and as we come to your table.
love like you, love like you, love because you first loved us. We wanna love like you. 